0: I'm hoping the Big Ten has to modify their system for us.
1: <laughs> it's probably like getting great ten sandpaper rubbed on your face every day. I mean, we say it all the time. Whether you know, there's two types of turds. You're a sinker or you're a floater, but you're still a turd, right? I mean, um, we're we're we are about players and players playing the plays, and not necessarily the plays.
0: Welcome to the Varsity Club Podcast. My name is Derek Peterson. Joining me this week is Jacob Padilla. Jacob, thank you so much. Being on the podcast, how are you? I'm doing well. It's been a while. It has been a while. And of course, the first take of, of this podcast that the world will never hear when I have you on is my voice cracking horribly trying to intro this. So, uh, you 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 making me nervous, maybe? Or
1: <laughs> well, I, don't know. I, I am. Yes, yeah, how I'm I doing. I'm doing, doing better forever. after hearing that.
0: Okay, that's good. I'm glad I could give you a little bit of um, a little bit of laughter on your your Thursday. We're recording this on a Thursday afternoon. You guys will be listening to it either on Friday or at some point throughout the weekend. Um, Jacob, like you said, it's been a while what is what is new with you? What's going on?
1: Well, um kind of the most exciting development for me recently is um, the fact that the summer basketball is starting back up a u basketball have, we had our tryouts. We've uh, had a, I've got a couple of practices under my belt now, so starting to uh, figure out uh, the team I've got on my hands. And uh, actually, uh, I've got Noah Vedrel's little brother uh, on my team, so that's exciting. Really? What position yeah. is he play? Uh, he's kind of a like three-four, kind of a wing. He's gonna have to play the five some for us because we have no size. But hey, positionless basketball, baby.
0: Hey, you take some take some tips from Fred Hoiberg. Just take some of his, some of his playbook, and just try to replicate that on your own team.
1: Yeah. Hey, any way you can kind of facilitate that? Just sit down with uh, Fred, kind of go over some of his best stuff.
0: Yeah. You think you Uh, think we
1: can make that happen?
0: We should try because that would be fun. We we would there would probably be you know two or three notebooks. (laughs) filled with stuff by the time we left his office or wherever we were talking his uh his playbook is wonderful i saw i've seen a handful of people that are going through um like five out college systems um this off season or over the last couple months and i think you've retweeted a handful of videos on my timeline and some of the the handoff and and some of the stuff that fred runs is is it's just like nice to watch yeah and I'm, i'm go ahead
1: and I was just going to say, um, Horberg did do the NABC kind of coaches uh, clinic. They did a series there just bringing on uh, a lot of different coaches to run through their stuff for other coaches. And I was able to kind of sit down on that and learn some stuff from that. So that was pretty cool to kind of let's get a little bit of a kind of see what's behind how he runs things and uh, kind of the five out up tempo system and how he incorporates all that So. That was definitely uh, educational for sure.
0: Get to see how some of the sausage is made, so to speak. Um, I have a question that I would like to ask you before we get to the topic at hand, and that is the offensive line. You wrote an offensive line story for the yearbook. We're going to talk about the offensive line in a second, but I saw something that you retweeted on my timeline Thursday afternoon that was a Phoenix Suns fan poll that was asking about one draft mistake that you could go back and change, and it had listed like, uh, what, taking Dragon Bender over uh, Buddy Heald and Jamal Murray, and then taking Josh Jackson over uh, De'Aaron Fox, and then DeAndre Hayden over Luka Doncic. Luka Doncic is an MVP candidate, and the only MVP candidate on that list that I saw, the Twitter poll that I saw, and Fox got like 36% of the votes, and Doncic only had like 42% of the votes. What is going on with your wacko fan base? Doncic should have like 80 to 90% of the votes. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, that that was kind of my initial reaction. Looking at that, when I voted, uh, Fox Isaac over Josh Jackson was actually winning the poll. I'm like, what are we doing here? Um, it's good to see that uh, people like me and some of uh, my other son's Twitter uh, friends have kind of shamed people into uh, picking the right one here to swing the vote. But yeah, I think uh, you you just take the best player and deal with the rest. Obviously, there's kind of there's a whole Luca Aiton thing on Sun's Twitter. There's a lot of people that um, are just kind of anti Luca because of how over the top a lot of us were in support of Luca and how much we kind of bashed the decision because it was pretty obvious to us at the time. And it's only become more so since it happened what the right pick was. Um, so I'm certain there's uh, a big part of that with uh, the results. But yes, the answer is definitely no matter. And DeAndre Ayton is better than I think a lot of us expected him to be um, in year two, like minus the whole 25-game suspension thing. Um, but he definitely has made a lot of strides. He's a really good player. He's kind of putting up some historic-type numbers. Uh, so I'm glad we have him compared to not having him. But if you can get Luka Doncic and play him next to Devin Booker, like good luck to the rest of the league dealing with that. And
0: I think – I think Aiton is, is better than what people give him credit for. I think Aiton is one of those guys that's forever going to have his career under a microscope because Luka Doncic was so good, right, like, so soon. So everybody's going to look at Ayton and be like, why weren't you better than what you were? It's not really... Like, I don't really think there's going to be anything that Ayton can do short of winning an MVP or winning, you know, the, being the best player on a title team that's going to have anybody look at his career with, through the proper lens, maybe. And, um, I mean... I argued with you at the time that Aiton and Booker probably made a little bit more sense than Doncic and Booker, uh, and I was clearly wrong, and, and you were one hundred percent right, and because Doncic looks so good. Is Phoenix? I is Phoenix in
1: the uh, the bubble? Yes, <laughs> they are one they of are. the they are. It's basically Phoenix and Washington that everybody's. Reacting to, like why are they even going there? <laughs> How far out of
0: the eight seed was Phoenix when the season ended? Uh, like four,
1: six games, something like like they're they they got a lot better from last year. Um, let's see. Yeah, so Phoenix is uh, twenty six and thirty nine. Um, we got uh, Memphis is 30, uh, 32 wins. Phoenix has twenty six wins. So, so they'd have yeah. to, yeah. They'd have to tear it up in the, like the eight game. Yeah, they can't uh, drop more than one of the games to have a chance to make the the eight nine play in thing. So yeah. And Kelly uh, Oubre not playing, so good luck with that.
0: That whole thing is going to be interesting because I think I saw somebody tweet that if the NBA was really serious about restarting its league and having this kind of bubble, they should have put it in like Idaho or Montana, and instead they're doing it in. Florida. I'm really interested to see how this all is going to play out because so far, from what I've seen, it and and I could be I could have missed um, a handful of guys, but from what I've seen, you you haven't seen any major rotation pieces. I mean, Avery Bradley is probably the biggest that have said, "Yeah, I'm not going to play." I don't. I mean, Trevor Ariza with Portland isn't that big of a deal, Um, but like, I don't know. It'll it'll be interesting to see when that first like high-profile player or player, and like that's going to be a significant piece of an eight-man rotation in the playoffs. Says like, "Yep, I'm not going. I'm done."
1: Yeah, um, like Dwight Howard is a really interesting one that we have coming up, just based on everything that's happened with his family and um, uh, with the COVID. Um, I think one of um, his children's mother died uh, of the disease uh, of the virus. So that uh, I think he's got a a big question in front of him and he's had a resurgent year with the Lakers been an important piece for them off the bench. So he he's one, I think a lot of people are kind of wondering about. Um, I think right now we know most of the big names. It sounds like they're all in because they were part of the conversations to get everything restarted, but yeah. And it'll be interesting to see too, as we continue through this process, we're still now so far off that positive tests, and this goes for college and the NBA and everything else. Right now, the positive tests don't mean a whole lot. If they keep popping up, the closer and closer we get to when things actually restart, that's when it becomes an issue. Because right now, basically everybody that tests positive, you've got time to quarantine. you got time to kind of recover and, and then join the team before the games actually start. Once we start getting closer to it, that, that, that window is starting to get smaller and smaller. And then now, if somebody does test positive, they're going to actually be missing either the practices leading up to or actually games themselves. So we're still a long way off from knowing whether or not this is a, they're actually going to be able to go forward with this.
0: We are not uh, a ways away from from college football returning, though, and and at least some aspects. I mean, it feels like it feels like these last few months have dragged on for years and years. And, and yet it still feels like, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but the college football season is still such a a ways away, but in what, like two and a half weeks, three weeks, um, players will start coming back or or players will start getting into more um, organized summer access periods on June 13th. Is that what it is? Uh, Or July 13th, excuse me. Yep. And um, coaches will start getting access to players. And then on July 24th, uh, we'll, we'll get the start of those OTA style. Um, two weeks of walkthroughs with a ball and a little bit more access. And then fall camp for Nebraska, we'll get, we begin on August 7th. The, one of what I think is the most interesting um, storylines of, of what, this preseason and what will be um, this fall camp is Nebraska's offensive line. Um, you obviously wrote about the offensive line. You wrote about what kind of Greg Austin talked about, what Greg Austin feels heading into this season and and his run game coordinator role, his his new role um, that he was awarded this past offseason. And I kind of feel like the offensive line this season for Nebraska sets the ceiling for how good the offense can be and maybe even sets the ceiling for how good the team can be. Um, Let's just start with a general discussion about where you're at with the line. You wrote, a, you wrote a big feature about him for the yearbook. Um, was that cathartic in any way? Like, what are your thoughts on the offensive line? Yeah. After going through um, everything that Austin said, after talking to the people that you talked to, after kind of laying it out the way that you did, where, where are you at?
1: Yeah. I, I actually, it's right up top of us. I think the offensive line will more determine the floor than the ceiling. Like, I think you've got, like, Adrian Martinez, I think, impacts the ceiling. Like if he's a Heisman candidate, then you've got a chance to uh, really do some things this year. I think if he obviously needs the offensive line to be good to get there. But I think if the offensive line is good enough, you can get enough out of the offense. Whether Martinez is just good, whether he's great, whether Omar Manning is all conference right away, like regardless of all that stuff, if the offensive line is good enough to get the yardage they need to on the ground and on simple plays to keep the offense moving that didn't happen last year. I think that will be enough to kind of boost Nebraska to the point where it doesn't lose. It wins more than it loses, or at least gets to that bowl eligible mark. I think you're going to need a guy like Adrian Martinez to be great to elevate the ceiling beyond that. But I don't think you can get to solid uh, or beyond without the offensive line, if that makes sense.
0: Um, yeah, so yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. Somebody, somebody asked us this week. Okay. So let me, let me ask you this. Somebody asked us this week in the mailbag about first team players on the all conference team at the end of the season and whether Nebraska has a shot at landing somebody on first team all big 10. And you and I both had said, Brendan, Hymus is, is a guy that, you know, he could get there if Nebraska's offense has a big year or if Hymus just has a standout year and is pancaking people left and right, Nebraska has a really good running game. Um, Does, does having, let's say Adrian Martinez doesn't take a big step, but just is better than he was a year ago. If Nebraska has an offensive line that has a Brennan Hymus, who is in the conversation for an all conference, first or second team in the conversation for being a, you know, day two draft pick and has Cam Jurgens playing really well. If the offensive line is that, if they're, you know, back to the way that they were operating in 2018 when Nebraska had one of the best ground games in the country, if they can get, you know, if they can, if they can figure out some of the protection issues that plagued them last year, if they're, let's say a top 25 unit, what does that do to this offense? Just, just the offensive line, ignoring what, what would have to happen with the running backs, or what would have to happen with Adrian Martinez. Like, let's say this offensive line at the end of the year is a top 25 offensive line in all of college football. What do you think that does to the offense?
1: I think that allows it to run as it's supposed to. I think if the offensive line can do its job on a play-in and play-out basis, then you've got a chance to really see what Scott Frost can do as a a play caller, as an offensive uh, mastermind that we expected him to be based on what he showed at UCF and Oregon. You got to be able to have like the key to Frost's offense is kind of the stacking success on top of success of setting up bigger plays with the, the inside zone runs where you're, you're picking up four or five yards uh, and then you hit them with the outside stuff or um, you hit them with a deep shot um, or hit them with a screen that that they break or whatever. Like you've got to be able to Nebraska too often we're getting stuffed early on or um, they're facing uh, second and third and long. And so now Frost has to coach against the, the situation as opposed to being able to call what he wants uh, as they're kind of building the plays on top of each other. So if the offensive line can do its job on a play-to-play basis, I think that allows everybody else to kind of show what they're capable of. You don't have to try to do too much. You don't have to try to make the big play when it isn't necessarily there. Maybe that's not the skill set because if you don't, you're giving the ball up. Um, So that's the key. That's why I talk about the floors. You've got to – the offensive line has to be – at a certain level in order for frost to really do what he wants to do. And I think that's kind of the goal they're looking for this year.
0: Let me just give you a couple of numbers or a couple of rankings. I'm not going to give you the exact yeah. statistics. Nebraska last year's 60th nationally in yards per carry rushing 89th in line yards, um, 95th in standard down line yards, 96th in sack rate. Yeah, and on passing downs, they they ranked 112th nationally in sack rate. It was bad. 12.6 yeah. <laughs> percent of uh, passing down attempts yeah. ended in a sack. Why did it not work last year? They had yeah. they had two two three juniors, a sophomore left guard in Hickson that had won the job from um, what the outset of fall camp. Like he wasn't um, like I, I don't remember him being in a competition during fall camp. I, if I remember correctly, he had the job to begin ball camp. And then he kind of continued building it and earned a scholarship. And then obviously Juergens had his struggles, but, but like, why, why do you think, why do you, when you watch back through the season, when you've talked to the people that you've talked to for this yearbook story, why do you think they struggled as, as uh, profoundly as they did last year?
1: Yeah. And that's kind of the interesting thing. Cause I did, I used a lot of those numbers in my, my feature, um to kind of paint the same picture to show how far behind they were last year. And continuity is a really good thing. Like returning five starters on the offensive line is usually a good thing. But when those five guys produce the results they did last year, how good of a thing really is that? And that's what makes this year so interesting with this offensive line is you do return all five starters, but there are so many different storylines with this unit because we, we still don't know who is going to start at multiple positions. We've got a pretty good idea, but even right now, I think left guard is completely up in the air. And we, uh, at right tackle, Bryce Bennard has to go out there and show the coaches um, that he can do what they think he can. So there's still so many questions answered. You've got the Farniak moving inside the guard. Um, you've got Himes coming back and uh, – Greg Austin really challenging him to be more than a lead by example type of guy to be more than a guy who just comes in and does his job. He needs him to be vocal. He needs him to be a teacher for the younger guys. So there are a lot of storylines on this unit. I think part of the problem last year, and that's what, um, the, the lineman that spoke at, at on that first day of spring said and talked about it was the, the, the cohesiveness just wasn't there. And, they weren't able to keep it up consistently. Like they, they'd, uh, they'd run a few plays correctly and then there'd be a breakdown. And now suddenly you're behind the chains again and you lost all that momentum that you had gained. Um, guys just weren't quite on the same page, one through five, all year long. And <laughs> I, think, uh, I think it might've been Matt Farnick said they, they feel a lot more comfortable now. Uh, at least they did on the first day of spring. They felt more confident in each other and playing together. Obviously, now uh, position changes and kind of shuffling that lineup. You're starting over a, at least a little bit there. But um, I think uh, they feel more confident, confident about being able to pick that up earlier just based on the experience they've had and where they feel they're at right now.
0: And for that reason, Brendan Hymas said on that that first uh, media availability of spring ball that there are no excuses. And yeah. that that philosophy kind of runs counter to what they're doing at right tackle because putting in a redshirt freshman guy, I mean, he's going to have bumps and bruises. He's he's going to have some growing pains with him in Ben Hart in, in the same way that Jurgens had growing pains last year. One thing that I admire about you, Jacob, is that when it comes to offseason um building up of young players, you're 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 rather conservative. You don't you don't get swept up in you know for example Miles Farmer talk and and you've been you've been like slow to say yeah Bryce Benhart's going to be really good and and they should just start him at right tackle and Matt Farniak at right guard and the offensive line will be better because of that configuration do you think that spring practice i mean it's obviously going to have some kind of impact but do you think that spring practice being lost thanks to the covid-19 pandemic is going to influence nebraska's decision making at left guard and right tackle when we talked to frost a week or two ago or whenever it was he said we're expecting a young player at right tackle he didn't specifically say ben hart but he also didn't specifically say that young player has the job yeah and if if farniak is at right guard instead of left guard he can much more easily kick back out to right tackle should they need him at right tackle do you do you do you think that there's still a possibility that Farniak plays right tackle when the season begins and Ben Hart is a backup guy because they just haven't been able to get those reps after losing out on spring practices or I guess where are you at with with the young guys with somebody like Ben Hart with somebody like maybe Ethan Piper yeah. or Trent Hickson who I think we could still classify as a young guy cuz he doesn't have a ton of experience um, yeah. where are you at with with those guys
1: Yeah um so I I, th- I definitely think it's in- it's possible that Farniak does end up back out at right tackle and they kind of go back to where they were. Um, Interesting. It- it's it's up to Ben Hart. It's- I definitely, if I had to bet, I'd definitely go with Ben Hart being the starter and Farniak at right guard. Um, mm-hmm. I think at this point, w- we saw what they did with Jurgens last year and how they stuck with him uh, because they believe the upside is so great. And they didn't believe the other options were that much better um, short term to give up that chance at reaching that that ceiling faster. Um, so they did that last year and they had experience for the most part outside of him. I think this year Ben Hart could end up being kind of that Jurgens like figure where they're going to give him every opportunity to grab the job and all he has to do is not lose it. Now. We, we haven't gotten to see much of him, and um, he hasn't been out there uh, in real competitive minutes. So we don't know yet how he's going to handle that. But, I mean, he was rated how he was. They prioritized him like they did for a reason. And I did a film study on him. He, um, he didn't play a ton, but in the snaps it looks like he moves pretty well. Um, I, I, I liked some of what I saw from him, even in the limited ability. It, de- it definitely seems like the tools are there to do what they need him to do. And I think maybe he is potentially a little bit more mobile, a little bit quicker side to side than Farniak was last year. So I-, I think at right tackle, they're going to give him every shot. And the only way he doesn't end up staying there is just if he struggles so mightily that um, that that he that they just can't justify keeping him there. I don't think Juergens ever got to that point last year, even with the snapping issues um, they never pulled the plug outside of that preordained second half with um, in, in that first game with Will Farniak. So I Do you think believe
0: that was the plan. There. Do you believe that was the plan? I still don't buy that. That was the plan. I, I yeah. don't care what anybody tells me. Cause we didn't see Farniak again the rest of the year. Like we saw him in mop up duty, but it was, it was, so bad in the first half, and then we just don't see Cam in the second half. So I don't know. Cause they my, said, they said beforehand I, yeah. that, that, that they were going to split up the reps, yeah. Didn't they?
1: Um, I, they might've, my, I can't answer that without knowing what shape. Jurgens was in at the time. Like maybe it's possible that first game after everything he missed, he wasn't ready for a full game of snaps and they worried about kind of overextending him in that first one. And they wanted to ease him back in regardless of the results. So I like a minutes restriction that. for yeah, a, exactly. a
0: basketball player or a pitch count in baseball.
1: Exactly. Sure. I, I, th- okay. I definitely like, that's kind of what we were told. And I, I can see how that would be a viable reason for it. Um, sure. especially with kind of the halftime break. Like if it's midway through the second quarter and they're just like, this just isn't working, get, get, get them out of there. Then I would, um, I would kind of be more hesitant to say, that kind of believe them that, Oh yeah, this was the plan all along. But, um, I, I, I definitely, I don't think I question them too much on that. Um, in that specific situation.
0: I'm sure it was the plan. They said pitch count. I'm just a conspiracy theorist by nature. <laughs> and, and and I'm I'm conflicted with this Ben Hart situation right now because of the way that Juergens was utilized last year. Like I think Benhart needs the same kind of treatment this season if he's going to be the guy that begins game one as the right tackle. but at the same time, they can't afford to mess around for another year just that, just from just from a, a rebuilding standpoint, they can't afford to mess around for another year. You can't be going into year four with thirteen wins, twelve wins like back to back or fourteen wins or whatever it would be like there that's needs true. to be significant yeah. improvement.
1: So but that runs you,
0: counter to, yeah. to what they have to do with some of these
1: positions. On the other hand, do you believe so? We saw what they looked like with those five starters last year. Do you believe another year will make Farniak any more mobile at, against speed rushers? Do you like that? That's kind of the the equation here is what is the kind of the floor and the ceiling of sticking with a guy like Farniak, or even playing a guy like Gaylord or w- whatever you're going to do there? Um, how how does that floor and ceiling compare to the floor and ceiling of a guy like ben Hart? And maybe well, you gave you gave same thing like at left guard or right guard with a uh, Bo Wilson and Trent Hicks. Um, you saw you gave those guys an entire season to show what they can do. Do you believe they've got another gear, or are you ready to kind of throw the wild card out there because we know this guy can't get us to where we need to go? So we're willing to maybe. Maybe the, the risk is greater that they'll struggle more, but we're not satisfied with what the reward would be um, of going more conservative.
0: This is the problem that Nebraska is, is currently being faced with on both the offensive line and the defensive line and a couple other places, uh, to be honest, as well. Greg Austin talked about this. You get into it in your piece. It's the gap, uh, the, the, the gap ideology. So Austin feels like they have gaps on the offensive line. Not having a senior right tackle, somebody that is going to stick at right tackle, if they believe that Matt Farniak was really good at right tackle and was mobile enough to handle speed rushers and edge rushers, like like you pointed out, he isn't. If if they had that guy, ben Hart would have been afforded two years to get ready. He'd be a third year sophomore before he's going before he's even able to see the field. So, look at the other side of the line and look at what Brant Banks is getting to do with Brennan Hymas. Yeah. Brennan Hymas is that guy. And so Brant Banks is going to be a third-year sophomore before he even gets to see the football field, probably in any kind of legitimate capacity. They don't have that luxury with Ben Hart. And they don't have that luxury with some of these other guys. They didn't have the luxury with Cam Jurgens. Like what they where they want to get to is a place where they look like Wisconsin on the line. And that's there are seniors all over the place that have been in the program for a long time, that have physically developed, that have physically matured. And behind them our fourth year juniors and third year sophomores that haven't played a lick of meaningful football because the guys ahead of them have been so good. And so they're just like sitting there yeah. waiting for their turn. And by the time they get their turn, they're also really good because they've been able to physically develop and physically mature in a weight room. And Nebraska doesn't have that luxury right now. And they're having to like, to borrow Frost's word fast track, just not in the way that, that, you know, Frost's yeah. meaning obviously, um, yeah. And, and that's they're why to...
1: Hymas' return is so important, and Greg Austin talked about that. Like they, They're they starting to fill in those gaps, I think, with the way they've recruited. Um, he he got that huge 2019 class. Um, we're starting to see a couple of those guys get in too deep now. Um, you've got uh, Turner Corcoran as kind of the gem of the 2020 class, um, and, and with Alex in there as well. And then now you've got, this 2021 class coming up with Teddy Perhaska is another kind of blue chip tackle prospect to get in the program, develop for a couple of years, and then maybe he takes over for Bryce Benhart at right tackle, or maybe he grows into a left tackle um, down the line, depending on how Corcoran turns out or Banks or whatever. So we're starting to get to the point where I think he's recruiting like he needs to for that kind of no gaps philosophy. We're just in the early stages now of where you can't afford that. You've got a couple guys that you really like. You just don't have five starters and five backups um, to, to step in no matter what happens. So you can't afford to have a guy like Brendan Hymas leave early. In the future, a guy leaving early after three years would be a great thing to have for this program, especially with their draft uh, kind of history recently. But Nebraska is not in a, a place where they can afford that right now.
0: You get to a new program and you just hope that the guys that were there before you left you in a good spot. But if they had left you in a good spot, you wouldn't have the job.
1: <laughs> that's exactly right. What but do you think about are so tough?
0: Yeah. What do you think about Greg Austin's responsibilities this upcoming season now that he has the run game coordinator role? What 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 do you expect from Austin on a game day?
1: Yeah, that that's interesting. And that's so the the two parts of the, the I, I sat at uh, Greg Austin's table for the entire kind of assistant coach round table. Um, I just sat there and listened and asked a couple of questions here and there throughout. But um, the two parts of that, that stuck out to me was him talking about highness and um, him coming back and the, how he's coming back with a purpose, not just to like build up his draft stock, but to leave the, the program in a good place and get it to where it needs to be. He wants to leave that legacy. He wants to be that leader. Um, that they need him to be. So that's kind of you got both guys there, kind of on the same page, understanding what needs to be done, and truly having the desire to make it happen. And then on uh, the other thing that stuck with me, that kind of led to me writing this, uh, was just kind of the passion in Austin's voice when he talked about um, that that new run game coordinator responsibilities. Um, the fact that the coaches trusted him enough now to empower him to be more vocal in game planning and in practice and then on game days as well. He knows like he's, he knows Scott Frost is a play caller. Um, Frost is going to be calling those plays, but there are going to be times where Frost will come to him and like, all right, which run do we want to go in this situation? And now Austin's going to be the guy that's going to be, have to be ready to give his opinion there. And he's got to, he's got to come up with some stuff that'll work. So I think it's just that ownership, I think can be so powerful for players, coaches, whatever it is like, you empower someone to take that ownership, to be more involved. um, And they'll work just that much harder to kind of prove you right and show why they deserve that opportunity. And I think that's where Greg Austin uh, is right now. And especially you add on top of that, the fact that he is an alumnus, he did go through it. Now he didn't play in the nineties. He was in the kind of um, the Callahan era and Um, So he didn't quite, he wasn't quite part of the program when uh, it was known as the pipeline um, that, that we know of, but he does like the offensive line tradition was still pretty strong when he was on campus, uh, when he was in the program and he kind of went through it and had to battle through injuries and earn his stripes and work his way up the depth chart. So he understands what that's supposed to look like. And he knows what he wants his, what is he wants his offensive line to look like. He knows what he wants his run game to look like within what Frost is doing offensively. So I I think it'll just kind of allow them um, with the offensive line, the running backs with Frost kind of all to be a little bit more in tune on the same page. Um, And I I think I'll hopefully allow them to kind of focus in on, all right, this is what we need to be really good at. We've got to be able to execute this type of run to allow us to do everything else. Uh, and, and that's kind of what Austin was talking about.
0: One other question that I want to ask you, Jacob, before we get you out of here. Nebraska added a walk-on offensive lineman uh, this week. Ezra Miller from Iowa. He was a former four-star recruit. Uh, he began at Iowa in spring. He had a back injury. It, uh, he, he left the team, and uh, it seemed like just a whirlwind first year for him or, or uh, where you know there was a, a lot of... Um, difficulty for him, both on and off the field. And so he, uh, at first, was, was he, he stepped away from the team and Iowa converted a scholarship to a medical hardship scholarship. And then he decided to to come back to football and enter the transfer portal. And so now he's at Nebraska, he's walking on. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but because he was on scholarship at Iowa, unless he gets a yes. waiver from the NCAA, he's going to have to sit this year. Correct. Um, Nebraska's adding, you know, they added the, uh, the guy from
1: Notre New Lily.
0: whose name I would butcher if I tried. Yes, so thank you. Um, they they've got guys, and you know this is this is ironic that I'm going to be the one that says it, but they've got guys f- through the walk on program on on the offensive line that um, that they've added recently that are intriguing. Yes.
1: Yeah, and actually go check out the uh for uh, for Thursday. I, I wrote a story. Uh, kind of taking a deep dive into the walk-on program and the kind of creative ways that the coaching staff ha- has used to add talent to the program without having to um, it, to burn a scholarship in the the current recruiting cycle. So, And that includes Noelle, a um, guy who started seven games at Colorado State at guard. Um, it includes Ezra Miller, who Uh, he, he didn't get a play for Iowa, but he, he spent a year in the program. He enrolled early, um, uh, in January of 2019 and then redshirted before kind of his issues came up. So he did, he's a former four-star recruit, highly, highly touted guy who kind of got a look at how Iowa does things and kind of got that started. So he knows what it looks like to to play in a big time program. He's not just, he's not your kind of typical walk-on that you're going to add, um, especially this late in the period. So you look at guys like that, you look at a guy like John Bivens, who is kind of a lottery ticket, a guy they were recruiting or looking at as a scholarship recruit at one point before the injuries and kind of academic issues um, caught up to him. And now that's the guy you bring into the program and see if something happens with him, given that opportunity and uh, worst case scenario, he's just another walk on best case. You've got another guy um, that can actually help you and you didn't have to give him a scholarship until he shows that he deserved one. Um, so in that regard, um, that, that's adding even more of that depth to that offensive line room on top of what Austin has been able to do with kind of the, the scholarship recruits that I've talked about recently. So um, that if, if you can keep this up, keep adding kind of walk-ons of this caliber that uh, maybe will be scholarship guys down the line after they show they've earned it on top of the way he's recruiting. It won't be very long until there aren't any gaps there in that program.
0: Sure, we could spend hours talking about the offensive line, but I'm I'm sure you've got work to do, um, so I will I will let you get to it. Thank you, Jacob, for joining the podcast this week, talking some offensive
1: line football with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, and I'm I'm glad uh, we finally got the magazine out to newsstands, out to mailboxes. Um, make sure to go pick it up. I really enjoyed. The, the work you and Aaron and Greg and Mike and Brandon, and everybody did. Um, there's so much good stuff in there, the Josh Mitchell stuff. And um, I, I was really, really excited w- with how the yearbook turned out this year, especially considering all the circumstances.
0: Yeah. Look, I, I was going to plug the yearbook, but I couldn't, couldn't say it better myself. So <laughs> the yearbook is coming. If, if you got it, it's coming. Uh, if you, if you, if you missed on it, make sure that you're looking at newsstands to try to pick a copy up for yourself. Keep reading HailVarsity.com. Subscribe to the podcast if you don't. Leave us a rating or a review. Listen to the Jay Moore More to It podcast. I do that every week. I say the <laughs> Jay Moore instead of Jay Moore's More to It. I do it every single week. Listen to Jay Moore's More to It podcast. Listen to the varsity radio show with Chris Schmidt. Follow us on social. Keep reading Jacob on HailVarsity.com and the rest of our wonderful team at varsity And
1: we'll be back to talking to you guys next week.